hello, and welcome to our podcast here at Discovery Point Church. Thank you for joining us today. We pray this message inspires you and is the beginning of a life-changing relationship with Jesus. Enjoy the message. Well, I think it was 1977, if you were around back then, when, when Eric Stewart and Graham Goldman wrote their number five uh, hit, The Things We Do for Love. Anybody recall that song? Were you anybody around back then? Yeah? And, and in the song, Eric Stewart talks about his very life. Living in the UK in the mid-70s, they didn't have a phone at home. So he had to walk through the rain and the snow when there was no place to go. You know, when you feel like a part of you was dying. And this song talks about his life and the crazy things he did for the girl that he loved that soon would become his wife. And this song has been playing in my head for the last number of weeks as I've been prepping for today. But when you think about it, all of us at some point in time in our lives, we've done some crazy things for love. I can remember. (laughs) Amen. I can recall being in high school, uh, working a part-time job where I made $98 a week, and that was big money back in those days. But I can recall wanting to impress this girl so much that I took my, my huge check and took her to the best place in Little Rock that I could afford. And that was Red Lobster. Man, fish and shrimp, everything was fried. And I spent almost $90 to to do this crazy thing for for love, in air quotes. We've all done crazy things for love. But here's a question. What have we done for our first love? And I don't mean Susan Foster from second grade. What have we done for our first love? The one who first loved us. What are we doing for the one who died for our sins? You know, in our culture today, it is so easy to just go with the flow and not recognize the one who saved us. It's so easy to just blend in and hide our love for Jesus. But I hope and pray today that after our time together, that we will be encouraged to live courageously and to love courageously our our Lord and our Savior. Amen? Amen? Amen. So if you have a Bible, will you turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Our text is going to come from verses 35 through 50, but I want to give us some context to kind of set the stage for our time together. So at the end of Luke chapter 6, as you're you're finding Luke chapter 7, Jesus has just finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And as you know, he's been telling the people, he's been telling his disciples what he expects of them as kingdom citizens. And as he finishes the Sermon on the Mount, Luke tells us in the beginning of chapter 7 that Jesus heads to Capernaum. And if you bring up the next slide, 
Capernaum is in the northwestern uh, region of Israel. It's just northwest of the Sea of Galilee. And he goes to Capernaum, and there he, he encounters uh, some Jewish leaders who, who've come to him on behalf of a Roman centurion. And the centurion has sent these leaders because his servant, whom he loves, is sick and dying. And these Jewish leaders implore Jesus, and they keep asking him to come to the centurion's house. He is worthy of you to come to him. And they tell Jesus how he helped, he helped them and how much he, he loves them and how much he cares about them. And so Jesus says, okay, and he, go, he starts on this journey towards the centurion's house. And some friends of the centurion intercept Jesus when he's close and tell him, you don't have to go to his house. Just say the word and his servant will be healed. That he doesn't feel worthy for you to come under his roof. And Jesus marvels at the faith of this centurion. Matter of fact, he, he says that I haven't seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. And as they go back to the house, they determine that the, the servant is healed at about the same time that Jesus told him. And so Jesus leaves Capernaum. And he goes about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum to a little village called Nain. That's a, that's a good walk, some 25 miles. But as he is walking to Nain, there is a huge crowd that is following Jesus. And as he gets to the city gates, he meets a, a funeral procession. There's a widow whose only son has died, and they are going out to bury him. Now, as you know, in the first century, if you are a widow and you have no sons, you have no means of support. You have no one to take care of you. And Jesus sees this procession. Matter of fact, he stops them. And he has compassion on this widow. And he touches the casket. And Luke says, he, he says, young man, I say to you, arise. And the young man gets up and starts to talk. And Jesus gives this son back to his mother. And if you're in Luke, look at chapter 7, look at verse 16 with me. Because Luke says that, that fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And there is this sense of awe and reverence and worship because this young man who was dead is now alive and this mother who was, was once a widow has her son back. Perhaps this village remembered the works of Elisha in 2 Kings 4 where he raised the Shunammite woman's son and gave her her son. Maybe they remembered this and declare that a prophet, a great prophet, has risen among us. But notice verse 16, that fear gripped the crowd. And that Luke says that they kept on glorifying God. 
they kept proclaiming a great prophet has risen and God has visited his people and there is much celebration in this village. Look at verse 17. Don't miss this. This report concerning him, that's Jesus, went out over all Judea and in all the surrounding district. Word, word about what Jesus has done spread like wildfire. And it was about this time that John the Baptist sent his disciples to question Jesus. Look at verse 20 of, of, of Luke of chapter 7. When the men came to him, and these are John's disciples, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? You see, John the Baptist is in prison. And Jesus hasn't overturned the culture. Rome is still on authority. The Jews are still oppressed. And John is trying to figure out, is Jesus the Messiah, the expected one, or should we be looking for another? See, John understood what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, when Isaiah said, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. John was looking for this day of vengeance when God would come and overthrow the, king, the, 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 the culture and set up his kingdom. But what John didn't realize is what Jesus said. And in Luke chapter 4, in Jesus' first sermon recorded in Luke, Jesus says this. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And Luke says he rolled up the scroll of Isaiah and then he sat down. Jesus didn't come to enact the day of vengeance of our God. No, no, he came to proclaim the gospel to the poor, to those who couldn't free themselves from sin. He came to proclaim release to the captives, to open the eyes of the blind, to free those who were oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, to proclaim a year or a season of grace. Vengeance is coming, but that's still future. Now, all the while, while Jesus is ministering, the Pharisees have been in the crowd since the beginning, and they are watching, desperately trying to find something to accuse him of. And even the, he, he even addresses the Pharisees. Matter of fact, in, in, in Luke 7, 28, Jesus praises John, even though he's doubting. He praises him. Look at verse 28. He says, I say to you, among those born of women, there is, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And I love, look at verse 29. I love this. All the outcasts respond. They said, when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, 
They acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. They agreed with Jesus. They acknowledged God's justice. The tax collectors and the sinners are up in an uproar because of what Jesus has said. They are worshiping God, acknowledging his justice. But the Pharisees saw it a different way. And they refused to acknowledge what Jesus has said. In verse 30, look at what the text says. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Pharisees wanted nothing to do with John because he was a little weird. He dressed weird. He lived out in the desert. He ate weird food. There was something a little strange with him. And the Pharisees rejected him. But Jesus, Jesus didn't. Matter of fact, look at verse 36 with me. I'm sorry. Um, in verses 31 through 35, Jesus calls out the Pharisees. And let me read this. Look at verse 31. Jesus says, To what shall I compare the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another. And they say, We played a flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her children." And just as, it, as, as the Lord would have it, a Pharisee shows up. And look at verse 36 with, with me. Here's the invitation. Luke says, now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. One of the Pharisees kept asking Jesus and asking him and asking him, come dine with me, come dine with me, come dine with me. Luke says he kept on asking. And Jesus agreed, and Jesus enters the Pharisee's house, and he reclines at his table. Now, it seems strange that this Pharisee would invite Jesus to his home for a meal. And it seems that he wants to somewhat size Jesus up to see if Jesus is orthodox, to see if he's got the right theology. He wants to know if Jesus is as radical as he says he is. And Jesus goes. And Luke says he reclines at the table. Don't miss this. When oftentimes when we think of Jesus eating, we think of, go to the next slide for me, we think of things like the Last Supper. Table, chairs, maybe bar stools, we don't know. It's as though Jesus has made himself at home in our house, and he's at our table. Uh, don't think this picture. Jesus is reclining. It would have been a, a very low-set table. Uh, low-set, sorry, low-set. And Jesus would have been sitting on his left side, leaning on his left elbow. Go to the next slide, please. And he would have had his feet tucked behind him because the feet were the dirtiest part of the body to keep them away from the table. 
and he would have been eating with the right hand, the hand of honor. So he's sitting on his side on a cushion, leaning on the left hand, eating with the right hand, feet behind him to keep them away from the table. You got the idea? All right, so Jesus is reclining at the table. Another thing, this is not a private affair. So don't think they go into the house, they shut the door, and they're in the living room having a meal. This was a public event. And whenever a rabbi or a teacher would come to a village, they would oftentimes get invited to dinner. But the entire village would be invited. And you'd have the guest reclining at the table, and those who were, who were not invited to the meal would enter in, and they would, they would stand around the periphery to listen to the conversation. This was first century entertainment. It's like watching cops on Saturday nights. And so people would come in, and they would, they would just kind of stand around and listen to the banter and the, and the discussions about theology or what was taught in the synagogue earlier. And it was a, it was a, a, a village-wide event. Jesus shows us something that not only does he sit and eat with the lowly of the low, tax collectors and sinners, but he even eats with those who are in high places, who were still sinners, with Pharisees. Jesus is an equal opportunity savior. My old pastor in Dallas used to say that he will, he will reach from, from the guttermost to the uttermost to share the good news of the gospel. He eats with the lowly sinner and the high-minded sinner because they all need to know the gospel. And besides, Luke, uh, Luke 19.10 tells us, it says that for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. No matter your position, no matter your theological bent, he came to save sinners, all sinners, high and low. You know what? This, this should speak to us. Because no matter your, your, your social status, no matter your lot in life, no matter your struggles or your reputation, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he is more than willing to forgive you of your sins and to save you and give you eternal life. There is no sin too great or too numerous or too heinous or too you fill in the blank that Jesus won't forgive. And sometimes we feel like we've sinned so much that we're just outside of the boundaries of God's love. Don't let the devil tonight, don't let him plant that lie in your heart. Sometimes you feel like you're beyond saving. Jesus loves you and died for you on the cross. And he will forgive your sin. Sin, sins, plural even. Amen? So if that's you, and you're feeling like there's no way Jesus could ever forgive me, think again. And so Jesus is reclining at the Pharisees' table. There are people lined around the walls in the room to listen. And look at verse 37a. 
And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. You don't see it in the English text in some Bibles. I think the King James mentions this. But Luke says, behold. And whenever you see behold in Scripture, that means to pay attention to what's about to happen. Pay attention to what's about to be said. And Luke says, behold. And he introduces a woman. And all that we know about her is that she was a sinner in the city. But we're going to learn that she had quite the reputation. And scholars loosely agree that she was most likely a prostitute. And based on the Pharisees' repulsive response to her, that might be true. Dr. Mark Young, uh, who's had a great impact on my life, made the following statement. He says, most women were not engaged in prostitution because of an overactive libido. He says most women who engaged in prostitution did so as an act of desperation in order to survive. And this woman was a sinner in the city. And she made her way to this meal in the religious leader's house. And her desire to get to Jesus was stronger than her fear of the judgmental stares that she would have encountered. Her desire to get to Jesus was stronger than the comments that condemned her. And you can see this in your mind. She, who let her in? What's she doing here? Where, where does she come from? Her desire to get to Jesus was stronger than her fear of the whispers around the room. It was stronger than their rejection of who she was. Her desire to get to Jesus was stronger than the fear to know that I'm not welcomed here. And it was her desperation that overruled her sense of guilt. It was her desperation that overruled her reputation in the city. It was her desperation that overruled the shame that she felt. It was her desperation that overruled her sense of God's rejection of her. Perhaps she witnessed at the city gate the raising of the widow's son in verses 11 through 17 and the people's response saying that a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. Perhaps she heard the other social outcasts, the tax collectors and the sinners, uh, rejoice and acknowledge God's justice, having been baptized by John's baptism. Perhaps she heard Jesus' invitation. Luke doesn't record this, but Matthew does. And Matthew records that during this time when they were at the city gate with the widow and her son, that Jesus says this in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And perhaps after hearing this, she made up her mind to run to Jesus and not let anything stop her. 
See, the Pharisees and the culture told her that because of what you are, you are outside of the boundaries of the love of God, that God could never, ever love you because you are a sinner. And there is no grace. There is no mercy. There is no love for you. As a matter of fact, if she caught herself walking down the street and a Pharisee was coming toward her from the other direction, he would cross the street and, cro- and go down on the other side to show her, to demonstrate to her that God wanted nothing to do with her. That her sin disqualified her from the love and the grace and the mercy of God. But Jesus offered her freedom and release from her sinful, shameful, wretched life. He offered her peace and acceptance and the outrageous love of God. Whatever the case, she had an encounter with Jesus. Look at verse 37b with me. And when she, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial or perfume. See, she got word that Jesus is in the Pharisee's house. And they're having a meal. And so she brings with her an alabaster vial. The alabaster vial was, was made in Egypt, and it was, it's a stone that's much like marble, but it's much softer. And it preserved, they preserved their contents for quite some time, which is why they would pour or use these to store expensive perfumes. And when you got ready to use it, you'd break the neck, and then you'd be able to pour out the perfume. And as a woman who was a sinner in the city, she would have this for her customers to make their experience uh, a bit more pleasurable and aromatic. But something happened to her. And she brings this alabaster vial of perfume to the Pharisee's house, having learned that Jesus is there. Verse 38, look at the text with me. And standing behind him at his feet, remember, Jesus is reclining at the table with his feet behind him, eating with the right hand. And standing behind him at his feet, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept on wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Don't miss this. Luke says that she stood behind him at his feet weeping. Greek word here is kleiousa, and it's not this, it's not that. It means to wail, to express grief or sorrow, to cry freely and profusely from sadness or distress or strong inner emotions. You can go to the next slide. And so she's not just a tear here and a tear there. She is bawling. She is is weeping profusely at the feet of Jesus. Luke says that she was at his feet weeping and she began to wet his feet. The Greek word for wet here is bracane and it means to rain or to send rain or to cause to rain. 
Here's the idea. Not only is she bawling and weeping, but she is showering Jesus' feet with tears. Something has happened to this woman. And she is crying profusely. Tears are raining on Jesus' feet. This may express a, a deep expression of sorrow or grief over her sin, or maybe the depth of her gratitude, having had her sins forgiven. Either way, there's a deep, a deep sense of thankfulness and worship in her actions. And Luke says that she kept wiping his feet with her hair, bringing shame upon herself. In the first century, women kept their hair up, and to let your hair down in public was an act of shame. Today we might say that uh, somebody went topless. It, one commentator puts it this way, normally women in public had their hair bound up, but the woman, far from being shameful, is demonstrating one of the most incredible acts of worship. So she is at the feet of Jesus, bawling, raining tears down, wiping Jesus' feet. By the way, the feet in the first century were the filthiest part of the body because you would walk in the dust and the muck and the mire of everything that is in the road. And she is wiping his feet with her hair. And Luke says that she kept on kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. The Greek word here for kissing is, is katafile. It means to kiss fervently, to kiss eagerly, to kiss affectionately or repeatedly. And she keeps on kissing his feet as she wipes his feet with her hair, as she rains tears down on his feet because she is overwhelmed with emotion. And she took the vial and she broke it and she continued to anoint Jesus' feet with this expensive perfume. An act of unhindered and outrageous love for Jesus. And I'm sure this sweet fragrance of this expensive perfume filled the room, filled the nostrils of Jesus, filled the nostrils of the Pharisee that invited Jesus. There is a sense of great repentance over her sin and an outrageous love for Jesus demonstrated through these outrageous acts of worship. Courageously, she has pulled out all the stops to demonstrate her love for Jesus. Verse 39. Now the Pharisee who had invited him saw this. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Simon's rejection of Jesus is now complete. Remember, back in verse 16, the people in the village were saying that a great prophet has arisen, among us, has arisen among us, that God has visited his people. And Simon, Luke says, says to himself, if this man were a prophet, i.e., he is not a prophet. 
Because if he were, God would reveal to him what type of woman is touching him. He is simply a man, and Simon relegates Jesus to being just a man. If this man were a prophet, then he would know, because God would reveal it to him. And Simon demotes Jesus to just a mere ordinary man. By the way, the Greek word for, for touching is aptitai, and it means to touch to cause illumination or burning to take place, to make close contact, to touch intimately, to have sexual contact. Do you hear the disgust in the Pharisee's voice? Do you hear the disdain if this man were a prophet? And, and this is all coming out of Simon's heart. Remember, he said this to himself. He didn't whisper it to the guy next to him. If this guy were a prophet, he would, he would know. He didn't do that. He didn't even say it under his breath. Jesus, does he realize who she is? He didn't, he didn't do that. Luke says that he said to himself, he said this in his heart. If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is fondling him. That she is a sinner. Look at verses 40 through 43 with me. And Jesus answered him. Wait, what? Simon didn't say anything. And Jesus answered him. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. Verse 41. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarii was one day's wage. So one person owed this moneylender almost two years' wages. And one owed basically a month and a half. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Verse 43. Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. It's in this moment that Jesus gives Simon something to think about. This also tells us that Jesus knows what's on our hearts, that he knows our inner thoughts, that we can't hide that from him. And so, now pay close attention, verse 44. Turning toward the woman, Jesus said to who? It's okay, you can talk in church. Simon. Simon. Who's the message for? As he turns to the woman, it's for her. Look at what Jesus says. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time I came in, 
has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, and he's, he's, still, turning, he's still turned toward the woman. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Did you catch that? Jesus says, for her sins, which are many. He knows who she is. He knows what she is. And yet sometime before this meal, Jesus had an encounter with her. And he says her sins, which are many, are forgiven, have been, past tense, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who was forgiven little loves little. I love this. Now, in the first century, when you would welcome a guest into your home, it was customary to provide either a servant to wash the feet of your guest, or at a minimum, you would give them a bowl of water so that they could wash their feet. Again, the feet were the filthiest part of the body. And Simon didn't provide, provide this for Jesus. And this would have been a public insult to Jesus. But the woman wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. In the first century, when you greeted a teacher or a rabbi, you would show them honor and respect by greeting them with a kiss. If they were of higher rank than you, then you would kiss their hand. If they were of equal rank with you, then you would kiss them on the cheek. Simon didn't do this for Jesus. Again, another public insult. In the first century, when you welcomed a guest into your home, uh, and you anointed their forehead with olive oil. It was a sign of consecration and welcome. Today we might say, welcome to our home. Make yourself at home. Relax. But Simon didn't do this. And again, another public insult. Yet this woman kept on anointing Jesus' feet with this very expensive perfume. Look at verse 47. For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. Again, but he who is forgiven loves little. Verse 48, then he said to her, talking to her directly, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? Look at verse 50 with me. And he said to, this, to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Talk about outrageous and courageous love. You know, just as the centurion's faith saved his servant, so too this woman's faith saved her soul. And just as the widow at the city gates, found grace and compassion. So too this woman found grace 
and compassion and was given a new life. We could learn some things from this woman and from Jesus. So in closing, number one, don't forget this. Jesus came to save that which was lost. Doesn't matter where you are on the social scale, what you do, what you have or don't have, he came to save that which was lost. And again, maybe you're thinking to yourself, maybe you don't know Jesus, and you're thinking, well, I've done some things, and I'm, I'm kind of I'm trapped in a sin, I can't get out of it. And he would never save me. No, the scripture says in Romans 5, verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, what? Grace abounded all the more. Where there is greater sin, there is greater grace. And if there is abundant sin in your life today, there is greater grace available. Don't ever forget that. Jesus came to save that which was lost. Secondly, don't count people out. The people that you encounter at home, in your neighborhood, uh, on the job, in the marketplace, or wherever you might be, don't count them out. Don't count them out because of their lifestyle. Don't count them out because of their culture. Don't count them out because of our own prejudices. This week uh, has been a very crazy week for me at work. A uh, lot of long days, a uh, lot of tired nights. But Wednesday I was, I was working and I was, there's a, unfortunately, there's a huge window right where I work, where my workstation is. So people can walk by and they walk by and they do this and wait for me to look around and they sit here and do you know, just crazy stuff. But I had a coworker come and stand at that window. And I'm sitting here working. I happen to look over. She's like, like can you come to the door? Uh, her name is Tima. I've known Tima for a number of years. She and her husband had their first child about six years ago, pre-COVID. And it's like, OK, she's, in, she's in going to second grade already, so we're, we're chit-chatting. Uh, Tima is Muslim. And she has family in Gaza. And I could tell there was something wrong, something that was bothering her. And she came to me. She said, you're, you're part of the Christian Employee Resource Group, right? I said, yeah, yeah, I don't lead it, but I'm still a part of it. Could you put together a prayer gathering? I said, sure, for what's happening in Gaza? She's like, yeah, I've got family there. And I'm worried about them. My mom says she's OK, but I don't believe her. And I said, absolutely. We can put something together to gather to pray. Pray for your family. Pray for the peace of Israel. Pray for peace in the region. Now, if I had just ignored her because she's a Muslim or because she's Palestinian, I would never have the opportunity to share the love of Jesus Christ with her. So don't count people out because of religion or again, our own prejudices. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Period. End of sentence. He didn't qualify it. Thirdly, these, this is your, your application. Sometime, Lord willing, this week, even tonight, step out and love courageously. Find one person to love courageously. Get to know somebody 
that you've been shunning or ignoring. Enlarge your oikos today or this week, Lord willing. Extend grace to someone who needs it. Like Jesus did to this woman. And love outrageously and courageously today or this week so that people might see Jesus in us. And then I want you to walk worthy of your calling. It's a worthy call. It's a holy call. But walk worthy of your calling. Does that make sense? I got to tell you, the things that we do for love, the things that we do for Jesus. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word and for our time together. Lord, our prayer today is that we would love others courageously the way that you loved this woman. And Father, if there are hang-ups that we have, if there are prejudices that we have that is keeping us from loving the way that you love, remove that from us, we pray. Holy Spirit, take that away from us that Jesus might be glorified through us, I pray. Lord, use us today for your glory. And we ask this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. We pray you allow this message to transform you to take what you learned and share the love of Jesus to those around you. You can stay informed and connected by following Discovery Point Church on all social media platforms. Thank you and God bless you.